Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Lake and this is Nashville. Charlie Strobel was the pastor at Holy Name Catholic Church in East Nashville when, without knowing it at the time, he took the first steps in creating the program that would become Room in the Inn, partnering with local churches to provide food and shelter to people experiencing homelessness, later expanding to a multi-level campus for human development in the heart of Nashville. That work brought him out of the church and into a life dedicated to service and guided by faith. He was a beacon of hope to many people across this city. Charlie Strobel passed away over the weekend from complications of Parkinson's disease. He was 80 years old. His impact on Nashville is deep, and he will be missed by so many, especially his family. I'd like to welcome my first guest. Beth Courtney is the niece of Father Strobel. She joins us now. Beth, thank you for being with us during this difficult time. And uh, on behalf of the show, we want to express our deepest condolences and sorry for your family's loss. Well, thank you so much. You know, tell me, how are you and your family members holding up right now? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that everyone has um, come together and really started to reflect on Charles's life, and yet the we haven't absorbed it. And the reason we have not absorbed it is because he was so present in our family, and um, he wouldn't miss you know, if you called him and said, want to go to a baseball game tonight, mm. he would do it. If you said, my child has, you know, grandparents day and, you know, he was so involved with everybody in a deep way that it wasn't like you only saw him occasionally. He was really there all the time. And so I, I think that that is also how he treated Nashville. Mm-hmm. He was there. He was present. He was involved and he never missed an opportunity to be part of a congregation, um, to be part of a room in the inn at night. And he was always, he was just present for this whole city all the time. You know, as we prepared for this show, we heard story after story of what kind of dedicated person your uncle was. Mm-hmm. Do you have a memory of him that really stands out to you when you're growing up? You know, so many memories. I think that as kids, you know, we, first of all, um, I was, uh, I was born when he was 20, you know, so he was our fun, you know, young uncle (laughs) who would cut up with us, who was one of the kids who, but as we grew up, what I think is important is that, and this is true of everything he did his whole life. There was so much joy. There was so much humor. There was so much personality. There was so much charisma that you, you, it was just magnetic. You wanted him to be there no matter what was going on. And then he would, along the way, teach you lessons. And they weren't by um, telling you, they were by showing you and and teaching you how to treat other people. Mm. And so, you know, I think that most of my memories about him, honestly, are funny memories where he would, you know, something would happen and he would absolutely crack up. And I'll tell you a story that just to kind of exemplify that, that but, that um, a friend, uh, uh, Randall Lancaster, told me um, uh, and I had remembered. So when when Charles was a young priest and I mean, probably in his early 30s, 
He was a priest at Holy Rotary Catholic Church in Donaldson. And Donaldson, Tennessee, you know, is, you know, a vibrant community. And there was there's a wonderful family, the Lancasters, who go to that church. And they had three daughters. And the youngest daughter um, had a doll. And she named her doll Father Strobel. Okay. And, you know, this was her <laughs> beloved doll. And she that's how much charisma he had. She was going to name him after her. I mean, named the doll after him. So the parents got the hugest kick out of that. And the whole family, she said, I want Father Strobel to baptize Father Strobel. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she brought the doll and they, after, you know, Sunday mass one week, they said, uh, hey, Father, can you come over? You know, I think it might've been Heather. Heather wants to show you her doll. And so he came over and he's like, oh, that's a beautiful doll. And they said, Heather, tell Father Strobel the doll's name. And she said, his name is Father Strobel. And unlike anybody could do it, Charles laughed Mm. and, you know, this huge like belly laugh. He couldn't believe it. He was so, he thought it was funny, but humbled. And then she was looking at him with these bright eyes and he, and he said, you want us to bless this doll, don't you? And she said, yes. And so then he, he got very serious and did a blessing. Wow. And, but, you know, to me, he was so much, he was, no matter your age, whether you were a small child or you were a very, you know, elder person in the community, he was so um, magnetic that you wanted to be part of his life and he wanted to be part of yours. Is is that is that passion for service to help people and to be there for people? That's a familiar trait? Um, yes. Well, his mother, Mary Catherine Strobel, was very much like that. And he was he was raised in Germantown um, in a community where, you know, service was something that was neighborly. Um, my grandmother, when we would be with her, you never felt like she was going to help people. You know, she would often have food in her car and take it and deliver it to people who were sick or who were in nursing homes. And this was what she did all the time. And during the weekend, all our grandchildren would pile in the car and we would go to different nursing homes. And we thought, because of the way my grandmother would express it, oh, we're going to visit all my friends today. Mm. And we never thought, oh, we're doing service. And that's what Charles really exemplified. He he thought that... The people who do not have homes are my friends, and I learn from them, and hopefully I can give to them, but they give me more. And and that, to me, was really the lesson of his life. How do you want your uncle to be remembered? Well, two things. It's a, you know, I think he will re- be remembered. He was so—he was a scholar. He was a—you uh, know, he, he loved to learn. He loved— to, to read and to grasp knowledge. He learned, I mean, he was a sports fan. He was, he loved movies. He loved com. He loved so much about life. That was number one. Number two, I think is the desire to, to create a, a, a community of hospitality for those in need, whether they're the homeless or they're the disadvantaged or they're the mentally ill. He wanted that to be that message to be about hospitality. And I guess the third thing, which I think is one of his crowning characteristics, but that perhaps um, will be talked about more in is he envisioned a world where all faiths came together in a common mission of of service, love, and kindness. And Everything that he ever did was ecumenical. 
And so his original, you know, faith was obviously Catholic and he was a, an ordained priest. But at the same time, there, you know, the one of the happiest days for him when he started Room in the Inn and it started to grow in terms of the congregations was when he called and he said, guess what? Our friends at the Hindu temple have joined Room in the Inn. The mm. Jewish congregations have joined. All of us are working together. And to me, he was very early to do that. And that sense of bringing people together in a common mission, regardless of, you know, how they, how people might prioritize their own expression of faith. It was, was a, a, just a crowning achievement. I want to thank you so much. I know that you're in a crunch for time. Thank you again for being here. Beth Courtney is the niece of Father Charlie Strobel. She was kind enough to join us today again. Thank you for being with us and our deepest condolences. Thank you. I enjoyed it immensely. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about Charlie Strobel, the man, and discover how his passion project, Room at the Inn, was created. Do you remember Father Charlie Strobel? Tweet us your memories at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. We are honoring the life of Charlie Strobel, who passed away this weekend at age 80. The native Nashvillian founded The Room in the Inn, and over four decades, for over four decades, he dedicated his life to serving people experiencing homelessness in the city he loved. His many honors include the Human Relations Award from the National Conference of Christians and Jews, the Catholic Charities Annual Service Award from the Diocese of Nashville, and the 2012 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Nashville Chapter of the American Civil, Civil Liberties Union. And not that any award meant much to him compared to the work he did every day to help those in need. My next guests saw this up close. Howard Allen is the co-founder of the Nashville Homeless Underground, and Rachel Hester is the executive director of Room in the Inn. Howard, Rachel, thank you for being here today, and we are sorry for your loss. Thank you. Thank you. How are you both doing today, Rachel? I'm heartbroken. I'm grateful. I have so many emotions, and I feel so loved by the Nashville community um, with their outpour of support. Howard, how are you? Well, <clears throat> A part of me died Sunday, but uh, Karen Ellen. I understand. Now, Rachel, I understand that you and you and Charlie, you guys worked together for nearly forty years, right? We have been together since nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen? That's a long time. It's a long time. So, for folks who are new to Nashville and may not know who Father Strobel was, can you give us a little background on the man? So, a lot of People don't know that Charlie Strobel was a priest in East Nashville in 1985 at Holy Name. And what started, what seemed like a big strategic plan was just him loving his neighbor. He welcomed people. Um, he was in his rectory when it got cold one night and he wanted to bring them in for the evening. But he knew if he did it, they'd be with him the rest of his life. And they were. That was 1985. I met him in 1989. Um and I was on a similar journey. My parents were, my, past, my dad was a preacher. And I thought, when I go to the college, I will never help another person. And then I met Charlie. And he showed me that the mission field doesn't have to be far away. It's right at your doorstep. Did you know back then in 1989 
meeting Charlie, that you would have this timeless connection? Absolutely not. And sometimes I was trying to run away from it Mm. in a lot of ways. Um, But he became, and Room in the Inn has become, the love of my life. You said you were trying to run away from it. What was it about him that made you decide that, you know, you were going to work and dedicate yourself to this mission? Well, I think you can ask a lot of Nashvilleians. He had a way of bringing you along and you didn't even know you were on the journey. Mm. <laughs> you know, there are 7,000 volunteers citywide who do room in the inn night after night after night in the wintertime. And they may not have ever even met him. But um, he invited us to experience God in a different way. And that feels great when you do it. So it it got started by one night, him opening up his doors to people who were in need. And now, as you said, there's 7,000 volunteers. Over 200 congregations are a part of Room in the Inn. And 35 other cities have taken that model. Wow. And he loves to tell the story. So when he, he had this inept ability to find the person in the room that needed him the most. And he would hone in on them. And inevitably in that conversation, he would say, do you see the good in you? Mm. And... A lot of people think he just did that for people whose wounds were visible. But he found it in all, he asked that question of all of us. He asked that question of business leaders, of developers, of city leaders in other cities. And what he was trying to remind us all is we can all do better. Mm-hmm. We, we, were, we had it in us from the beginning. Tell us what Room when, in the Inn was like when it was started. Well, Room in the Inn was just a small shack right where Bridgestone Arena is now. There were three employees and... It was the days of the dinosaur, is what we used to call it. Um, we didn't have a lot of policies and procedures, and it was a mom and pop shop, and we were just doing the best we can with the congregations who we would send out. We were like the airport, and people would go out to the congregations night after night in small groups of 10 to 15. And Charlie believed that when they went out to the congregations, that every opportunity there was like the communion meal. They had an opportunity to sit with somebody who was housed and somebody not housed, and they both find their voice and both talk together, which created an informed citizenry in our city and really made us unique as Nashvilleians. Mm. Now, Howard, I understand that you had an interesting encounter with Father Strobel the first time you went to Room in the Inn. Can you tell me about that? Uh, Well, I had just become homeless and he was standing out. And I'm a Father Ryan graduate also. And we had a lot of similarities. He had a friend named Winston that lived in the same neighborhood that he did. And Little Winston was my best friend, so I spent a minute of nights, which is Monell's now. But um, I was ashamed to say anything to him because I had went from being a pretty good football player to being homeless, and he stopped me and said, uh, what's your name? And I said, Howard, and I was trying to get away from him, and he said, wait a minute, come here. What's your last name? And I said, Alan. And I tried to walk away again, and hmm. he said, wait a minute, where did you go to school? I said, Father Ryan. He said, what? I said, Father Ryan. (laughs) And he thought about it. He said, you ran the football. And this was 75. And um, he said, this is how you're going to go through homelessness. And he took me and we talked. And from that period on, I would see him off and on. But when I became homeless, we connected again. And he never let me go. Um, he was my spiritual mentor. I understand. 
understand how hard this is for you. He was my protector. And he carried me through stuff like this because we buried a lot of my brothers and sisters that were homeless. And he opened the door where I could speak and be listened to. And he was the conscience, not just for Nashville, but the whole state of Tennessee. And I haven't got over it, but he's going to carry me through this, too, because I'll tell him about this when I see him again. Mm -hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is <clears throat> pardon me. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the life and legacy of Father Charlie Strobel, the beloved priest who passed away over the weekend. My guests are Howard Allen and Rachel Hester. Now, now I, I can I can see how. Father Strobel inspired you, Howard, to become an advocate for unhoused people. Yeah, and um, he kept me centered. It's two people that I knew that would help me stay cool and calm because I'm, I'm an only child, but I have somebody like a play brother by the Howard Gentry. So whenever I had to think about what I was going to do, a power move, I would let Howard know because he's a politician and I'll let Charlie know because he might want to join in. And I've done everything possible on another level dealing with homelessness, trying to put it a face on it. I've taken over houses. I've went into the Capitol and took over for 77 days with the National Peace and Justice Center. And I wouldn't think he would be there, but he would be right there. And then I, I got a disability where I was sick and I had two or three surgeries. And I would always let him know, hey, you need, maybe need to come and give me absolution because who knows? Mm. And he would always be there. And he's the only other man other than my father that I ever kissed on the head on a regular basis, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and he would kiss me, you know? and. You know, one of the funniest things that about uh, maybe five weeks ago, I went and uh, <clears throat> he we had to wait for him to come out from lunch, and he had his hat on. And I said, "Hey, Charlie, how you feeling?" He said, "Man, you're looking good." I said, "Man, I hear you can have quarter pounds." He said, "Wait a minute, don't let that out too loud because I don't need him to know that." <laughs> so we laughed about that. And so, you know, last week, no, two weeks ago, I went and got my rosary blessed by him. And then he said, as I was leaving out, he said, come back, I need to bless you. But one of the most important things that he asked me twice, he asked me, you know, reading in the book of the Bible, what character do you think you closely resemble? And the first time I said, Moses, but I can't even leave my people in the house in here. And so... And then the other time he asked me, he said, what character do you resemble now, the closest? And I said, Peter. And he said, why? I said, because I think Peter was a fool, but he knew answers to certain questions. Hmm. And I said, and God was still working with him. And I said, you're still working with me. And he just said, hmm, interesting. Hmm. Yeah. But I spent a lot of time with him while he was in the hospital sitting, just me and him watching him. And um, and one thing I want people to know, he, he was a great man, but he was very messy. 
his office was in a mess. Okay. <laughs> his, his car was in a mess, but he knew where everything was. Yeah. But he was genuine, and he was the truth, and he was the conscience of Tennessee, and it just spread. You know, a few months ago, Room at the End posted a video with Charlie explaining how he had come to see meals people share with each other. Mm -hmm. He called them communion meal. Let's listen. Regardless of the food, the chili, the lasagna, the salad, the corn, the drink, a Room in the End supper carries the force of the unleavened bread and unblemished lamb and choicest wine that were shared at those ancient Passover suppers and the Last Supper. Ultimately, such a meal contains the possibility of a communion with the God who is among us. For 36 years, people have come together to do this. Reluctantly at first, for suspicions were plenty. Some congregation members stood on the other side of a serving counter, like vending machines, dispensing food without sharing, while the homeless guests wanted to go off and eat in a corner by themselves. But the invitation of God to come sit down and eat together, eventually won the hearts of all, and the miracle of a communion meal was born. Now, 36 years later, I believe it remains our most important connection. Room in the end may be safe and clean and warm and dependable and secure, but most importantly, it is loving hospitality found in the sharing, the laughter, the tears, the memories, the hopes, all those other moments that bring us communion with each other and with God. Rachel, what are your thoughts as you listen to that? That's who he was. That he, Room in the Inn was his parish. He, he was our, you're right, he was our spiritual leader. He was our father figure. Beth was right when she said he taught us lessons by showing and doing um, our core values the night that he opened are the same ones that we have today. And they start with our spirituality, but they end with a community of nonviolence. And that doesn't come by chance. That only comes with relationships. And he wanted all of us to have those. He was, he'd never hesitated to be there for anyone in need. What does that say about, you know, his character and the essence of it? I think it's lonely. Though, though, yeah. I, um, he was always there for him, but he never asked any of us to be there for him. And so I think he knew that we all looked up to him and it was a weight he carried and he took our cares from us and he carried our burdens. And I don't know that we all knew that to do that for him. He, I understand he had his way of de-escalating. Oh, he's a mess. Tense situations. He, he's got a lot of humor. Um, I, when we talk about the days of the dinosaur and, you know, we didn't have a lot of rules early on. Um, we do now, and it is a safe place. But again, our, our response is nonviolent. We had a big old fight one night, and there was fight, people fighting. And Charlie goes into it. I go into it. And it just felt like he was pulling one person off and throwing them out, one person out and throwing them out. And it was over a cigarette. And somehow in the midst of this big fight, this little guy, Scott, climbs in the middle of it. And he sings in the most perfect soprano voice. You and I must make a pact. Mm. Charlie starts roaring with laughter. He has one guy fighting on one side, another guy fighting on the other side, and they're swaying back and forth, and the whole crowd starts <laughs> laughing. That only happens with relationships. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen because we had metal detectors or batons or tasers. 
and we can laugh about it and realize how silly it all was. And he believed in the gift of reconciliation. And for most of the people who who I serve or he, and he served, rarely had people offer them that opportunity. The consequences, they're already in place, but reconciliation is different. Howard, do you remember a particular moment? Well, I remember a whole lot of moments, but I just wanted to say the best memory for me is I told him that he was a miracle worker because anytime you can get different denominations to come aboard on the same page, because religious starts wars in certain places and be able to come on the same page to bring in the least of the to a place where they can have a meal, a place to sleep and have comfort and a sanctuary for a night. And our government can't do it. And for him to be able to do what he's done and be able to keep the Metro government out of it, mm. that says a whole lot to me. How, and for our brothers and sisters on the street. How how would they respond to him? How would people who were living on the street respond to him when they came to a room in the inn and he and he talked with them? <laughs> love. It didn't take long for you to fall in love with him. And then that smile, he was true. I mean, truly. Um, however many people they can say that are out here on the streets that have been through room in the inn, and we have something that he, he, they care about that our government does. We have a tree that's the tree of life for anybody that's ever. I'm sorry. Been there. Been there. Mm-hmm. He was our hope. He was our hope. Can I and, talk about that? Yeah. So at Room in the End, we have a tree. And early in the early days, it was cut out of... Readers, uh, National Geographic's, we wrote people's names on it with a Sharpie, and we decoupaged them on the wall. Okay. Today, we make beautiful leaves out of clay that we make ourselves, volunteers, staff, participants. And we, every year, also go out to the cemetery and make sure we haven't missed anybody's names. But uh, as you enter our door, it is not a donor wall. It is a, a tree, beautiful patina of different people's names even the names of some who say unknown. And he said, we will remember them every day that we walk in these doors. And he wanted them to know if no one else did, he would. Mm. And there's over 700 names in it. And when we put the first names up in our new building in 2010 for the ones who had already passed, I was there that night with him and he told a story about each one as we, as we installed it. And again, that was a religious act. And he believed doing Room in the Inn was a religious act for no one to see. Yeah. So sometimes Room in the Inn has been the best kept secret in town because mm-hmm. we don't always shine our light. Mm-hmm. Um, but the spirit is just warm. That doesn't mean we don't have we don't have rules and all those things. But he wanted us to be welcoming first. Mm. Now, go ahead. How Howard, you talked about how supportive he was and him always being there. I understand that in 2006, you held a vigil to find the body of Tyra Coles, who was a young woman who was drowned after she was pushed into the Cumberland by two men. Tell me briefly about that and what stood out to you about Charlie. Uh, I had, like I said, I messed up sometime. I had cocaine in my system. I had just got out of uh, jail. And I went down and uh, standing after she had been pushed in. 
And I, it was a guy from Tennessee, and I said, man, if she was from Hendersonville and uh, Bellmead, there would be plenty of boats out here. I said, but she's homeless, and they're not even looking at her. So that came into the paper. So I had to go to Charlie because I was going through some stuff. I said, Charlie, we got to do something. And he said, what? I said, we need to have a nightly vigil until they pull her body out. And he said, great, I'm with that. And so he got the candles, and, and for the first time, me dealing with Charlie, he was there. I was late. Mm-hmm. And so he was just in meditation when I came up, and it was just me and him, and then it kind of grew. And that's just, I don't know if he ever saw Tara or whatever, but the love was so genuine, and it was unconditional. And he carried me through that, you know. How do you want how do you want Charlie Strobel to be remembered? How do I want him to be remembered? As uh, this is what he says. And I I'll go with that. Uh, he says he was a worthless servant at seventeen ten and Luke. But um to me, he was an angel here on earth to get us ready for when we get to go see angels in heaven. And so I want you to know that he was just a genuine, truthful, one of the greatest teachers that you could ever learn from because he taught those that didn't believe the Metro government, and he was a miracle worker for the least of thee, and that we're all brothers and sisters. Howard Allen is the co-founder of the Nashville Homeless Underground. Howard, thank you. Thank you very for much. For taking time to tell us about your friend. Thank you for having me. Rachel Hester will stay with us through the break. When we come back, we'll discuss the legacy of Charlie Strobel and learn why he opposed the death penalty. You can share your memories of Charlie Strobel and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'd love to hear them. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been honoring the life and legacy of Father Charlie Strobel, the founder of Room in the Inn and tireless advocate for people experiencing homelessness. He died over the weekend at age of 80. Before the break, we learned about how he came to create Room at the Inn and shift this city's conversation about homelessness. Now let's learn about some of the other missions that fueled Father Strobel's passion. For that, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Stacy Rector is the director of Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, and Lindsey Krinks is the co-founder and director of advocacy for Open Table Nashville. Stacy and Lindsey, thank you for being here. Our deepest condolences to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. How are you both holding up right now, Stacy? Um, I'm holding up okay. Uh, I was able to be with Charlie on Friday for a good visit, and that's been a gift for me um, to tell him I loved him and to hear him say he loved me. And um, I'm I'm just I'm, I'm so sad, but I'm so grateful um, to have been his friend, to have 
learned so much from him over the years and to, to share in the work that we all care so much about. So it's, it's a tough time. It's going to be a huge adjustment. Um, but there's just a real sense for me of just gratitude right now. Lindsay? Absolutely. Just riding so many waves of feelings that come and go. You remember a funny story he told you and you laugh and then you remember how much he shaped your life and it just breaks you anew. So it's definitely a hard time, but um, I echo Stacy and just feeling this immense gratitude for his life. Now, now Stacy, your organization, Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, produced a documentary called To Honor Life that Charlie is featured in. He talks about why he opposed the death penalty, even though his own mother was murdered. Let's listen to this clip. She had a normal, regular day in retirement of working at a soup kitchen. That was a normal day for her. And she had been at my um, rectory, and she left there. She was abducted at knife point by an escapee from a mental institution. He stabbed her in the throat, and she died immediately. We uh, began a search. We came upon her car parked in the parking lot of the Union Mission. We opened the trunk and found her there. So we called the police, they put the yellow tape, and then it became a crime scene. The police kept saying there are no clues. When the man was apprehended, it was a month later. When he was arrested, we spoke against the death penalty, and then later we issued a formal statement to the district attorney asking that they not consider the death penalty. I'm more convinced that we do not need the death penalty after her murder. We said at her funeral, we believe in the miracle of forgiveness. It became a miracle in it and it brought us peace that the person who lives inside of you no longer had to live there because he is forgiven. Wow. Talk to me about, you know, his ability to look past vengeance and he's going to work to abolish the death penalty despite what he experienced. And in fact, Charlie would tell you he was even more dedicated to ending the death penalty after his mom was murdered. Um, I think Charlie, and you've heard it said so many times today, I mean, he believed so much in the goodness, that there was goodness in everyone and that we were more than the worst thing we've ever done. And that um, he never wanted to uh, feel, you know, the story, I know Rachel knows the story of when he talked to his mom one time about, what did she think about the death penalty? And she looked at him and said, well, I wouldn't want that to happen to you. And for Charlie, he wouldn't want that. To, what, what that family, what his family went through, he would not want any other family, including the family of someone who committed a violent crime, to ever go through that. Um, and as Charlie would say, you can never balance the scale once someone has uh, been taken by murder. But what you can do that perhaps brings back some measure of equilibrium is to 
show mercy and love in the best way you can so that you can move forward with your healing. And he knew that wasn't, I mean, he called it a miracle, right? It's a hard, hard thing. And it's for many people, that's a lifelong journey for Charlie. Um, um, he was, he got there fairly quickly, but he was always very concerned beyond, um, beyond just not believing that violence would solve the issue. He also knew how devastating the whole process of the death penalty was for families that are trapped for decades and decades. And so he, he never wanted any family to go through that. And he was grateful his family did not have to do that. Mm. Now, Lindsay, I understand you met Charlie when you were a young college student, right? I did, yes. <laughs> Tell us about meeting him for the first time. Oh, Charlie, we were introduced by our mutual friends at the Nashville Homeless Power Project when um, my now husband and I, we were both students at Lipscomb at the time, were planning our first rally for affordable housing. And Charlie heard about students organizing. And, you know, he was a student of the 60s and left seminary to go participate in civil rights movement and anti-war protests and he called me up one night when we were planning the rally and he said, you know, my name is Charlie Strobel. Um, you may not know me and I had no idea who he was. And mm. he said, I want to offer to do the opening prayer at your rally. And I thought, oh my God, who is this guy calling me? <laughs> so I said, I'm just going to, let me call you back after I talk to the students. Well, shortly after we faced a lot of, um, a lot of pushback about organizing something with students. And we called him up and said, can you come give us advice? And he came in his sweats late one night to Lipscomb dorm and we shared donuts and he just sat with us. And like the, the question that he asks all of us, where are you in scripture right now? We knew that he knew we were wrestling with our faith and what our faith was calling us to do in the face of suffering. And, um, after that experience, we became friends and, um, and he also became one of my spiritual mentors too. So what, he, what was it like to be mentored by him? It's never like he's, he. it's never patronizing, right? He's always a friend to you. You're always sharing the journey together and he's always awakening in you the light that you didn't know was there mm -hmm. and the possibilities that other people might have silenced. I grew up in the churches of Christ, which I love, and I was silenced by a lot of the men in those settings for so long. And my voice was shaking so much the first, that first rally. And Charlie prayed over me before he said his prayer, mm. before I spoke. And this calm just came over my body. So it's just this deep friendship. And um, we would have coffee over the years. He was a supervisor when I did a chaplaincy residency on the streets, mm. which nobody does that. So it was, mm. it was really special and um, it continues to be a special relationship. We just got a tweet in at This Is Nashville from Augusta. It says, quote, I've only met him a few times, but I clearly got the sense he truly exemplified what Jesus called the first and second greatest commandments. He certainly left a very rich legacy at Holy Name Parish in East Nashville. Rest in peace, Father Strobel. Now, Room in the Inn Executive Director Rachel Hester is still with us. Rachel, can you, you know, talk, talk about how Charlie lived by those commandments? Well, most people don't know is many days um, he read the Sermon on the Mount and he believed in those beatitude moments. And he believed that the that blessed are the poor men, all of us, and that we were all one. He was very childlike um, in his beliefs in all of us and his beliefs in what was possible. And if you remember how it felt to be on the playground and abandoned or isolated or in tears, and that person walks over to you and goes, I'll be your friend. 
when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. That's that's what he did. He did that for. I had a front row seat every single day, and it wasn't just the people who were experiencing homelessness. You know, he. I know he was active for a lot of years, and he had relationships with a lot of the city's mayors and the city council people, and he really didn't hesitate to hold them to account. You mentioned something a little bit earlier, Rachel, but Lindsay, what was it like about the way he talked to powerful people that you took notice of? And, you know, is there anything, Mm -hmm. as a little story that stands out to you about that? Yeah, so I met him in 2007, and Mayor Bill Purcell was, Bill Purcell was a mayor then, right? And he was friends with Bill but he was also the first to go on his front Bill's front steps to City Hall to have a rally for Bill to actually live up to his commitments um, when it came to putting funding for housing in the budget. He was the first to be arrested, right, um, a couple weeks later when those commitments still weren't there. Um, there in 2008, in the heart of the economic recession, right, Tent City was the largest camp um, in the city. It still is today. But the city was going to close it. And I was an outreach worker at Park Center at the time. And Charlie, um, you know, we heard the city was going to close the camp. Charlie was concerned about this, too. And so we were planning, a couple of us outreach workers were planning this rally, again, a rally, right, to Mm -hmm. petition the mayor. We didn't know him personally, um, to petition the mayor to stop the camp closure. Well, Charlie calls him up behind the scenes, and he's like, hey, Carl, come down here with me. See these people. No bells, no whistles, no cameras. Carl Dean goes down to the camp with Charlie to see the people, meet them, see the, their conditions, hear their stories that the, the city is about to evict and throw out with nowhere to go. And um, we turned that rally into a reprieve. Charlie called us right before the rally. I said, hey, have you all seen the press release? And we were like, no. And he said, they're giving the camp a reprieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so he just... He made so much happen and he had so much trust. I've never met someone who had as much trust in the halls of power as he did underneath bridges and on the streets. Mm. People just believed in his spirit, the genuineness of his spirit, and he befriended everyone. Stacy, talk about, did he have the same approach when he was dealing with power, talking about the death penalty? Absolutely. Um, There was a humility to Charlie and a power to Charlie. Um, he, he always humbly approached people with love, with respect. Um, as Lindsay said, people, he treated people the same <laughs> regardless. And, um, but he, he, he wanted them to understand why he believed what he did and that he felt like the death penalty was a failed morally bankrupt system that needed to go. And he never minced words, but he always was able to share in a way that people could hear. Um, and that was um, allowed room for people to ask questions and to uh, to not be defensive and feel threatened, right? I mean, he was able to do that in a beautiful way. And, and you know, I, I'm sure changed hearts and minds about this issue from his own example. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaleole Colonna. We're talking this hour about the life and legacy of Father Charlie Strobel. My guests are Rachel Hester, Stacy Rector, and Lindsey Krinks. You can tweet us your memories at This Is Nashville. And a note for listeners, there will be a celebration of Charlie Strobel's life this Friday, August 11th at 10 a.m. at First Horizon Park. Now, I know that the home of the Nashville Sounds is really an appropriate place to celebrate Charlie's life because he loved baseball, as his niece told us earlier at the top of the show. 
What was so special about baseball to him, Rachel? So he lived in North Nashville all his life. That is the home of Sulfordale. That is where he found, he knew um, pain early on in life. Why, yes, he did lose his mother. He had early, in the earlier years, he had lost his father. And so listening to the bats crack and listening to the cheers of the crowd, that was his escape for many years. And he had a love for it. And when I say love, he traveled competitively till his, in his 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, that was where he found his relief. That's where he found God on the mound. Mm-hmm. And um, he wanted to make sure we had a service somewhere that everyone felt welcome, believers and non-believers. He always said, you preach to the person on the back row, never to the choir. And he, when we, and he said, and I want it to be dramatic and spatial. We have no idea what that meant, but he told us everything else he wanted. <laughs> and when he's, and he said, and I want to do it at Room in the End because if, if they want to come, they're going to come here. We're under construction right now. We're building 10 new affordable housing units. We can't do it. And that's God up there making his moves. Mm-hmm. We thought, what about the sounds? What about taking him home, home plate? It's just so appropriate. Everyone's going to feel welcome. And um, there's just, you know, there's a Don Schlitz song about I am the greatest that I've ever seen. It's about a kid saying that to himself over and over again, even every time he strikes out. And Charlie struck out a million times. And he would not want us to make him a saint. Because if we make him a saint, that means that when he's gone, that we don't have the ability to do what he did. We do. Mm -hmm. Every one of us have the ability to love our neighbor. And that's as simple as it comes. We don't have to have huge strategic plans. We don't have to have a huge organization. We can just love the person we are. And the radical is within you. It's not defined by someone else. You know, it was mentioned here several times by everyone. I think he was very, very funny. Hilarious. Hilarious man. And I, I, you know, my personally, I like to elicit laughter in moments of sorrow. So if you're game, can each of you share a quick story about Charlie that makes you laugh? Stacy, I've got one for sure. Um, when I was associate pastor at Second Presbyterian Church many moons ago, the church and Room in the Inn decided to do a Easter sunrise service and breakfast. And um, Charlie, of course, was there bright and early. Um, and either the first or maybe the second, I don't remember exactly when it happened, he had a stuffed bunny. And after he shared his words about Easter and the the love of God and new life and new birth and resurrection. He said, I want to tell you a story about an Easter bunny who didn't know who he was. And he's holding this stuffed bunny. He said that this bunny knew he wasn't a dog because he couldn't go bow, wow, wow. This bunny knew he wasn't a rooster because he couldn't go cock-a-doodle-doo. This bunny knew he wasn't a cat because he couldn't go meow, meow. But one day this bunny met another bunny and they became fast friends. And then he knew. And when he said that, Charlie squeezed the rabbit and suddenly you hear, you're no bunny till somebody loves you. (laughs) (laughs) And it played on. He loved that bunny. And even recently Mm -hmm. was talking about that bunny with me and with Rachel. I videoed him at Easter. I took him the bunny because he was in a rehab hospital and he... (laughs) Told the story again. It was just me and my son, and he played the bunny, and he said, 
wherever I'm going, that bunny's going with me. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> like, Lindsay, you have a quick story? Brief story. Um, he had the ability to pull at your heart and make you laugh in the same breath. And when he told me about his Parkinson's getting worse, probably five or six years ago, he was really um, concerned about his hands shaking all the time when he was speaking, when he was out. He said room in the ink guests would come and hold his hand steady when they would see that. And he just felt this immense comfort. But then he also told me that if he was out speaking somewhere, somebody told him if his hand started shaking while he was speaking to just say he was Pentecostal. <laughs> so that was also just, I loved that so much. <laughs> you know, Rachel, this is a really huge loss for the city and I can see how it's a huge loss for all of you. Can you, how can we, people of Nashville, best honor the legacy he's leaving us with? I think what he's going to... I keep, he wakes me up at night, the last few nights. Mm. He wants to make sure that we look people in the eyes and we see them. Mm-hmm. As we grow as Nashville, we cannot be so um, mesmerized by the bright and shiny new that we forget who our neighbors are and that everyone deserves love. Not just to be, not to just, not, we don't, we're the givers and the receivers where you can't tell the difference. And that's what makes Nashville unique. That's what's bringing people to Nashville. And we need to carry that on. And so everyone can do something. I really want to thank you all for coming onto the show and honoring the life of this wonderful, wonderful human being. My guests are Lindsey Crinks with Open Table Nashville, Stacy Rector with Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, and Rachel Hester with Room at the Inn. Again, thank you so much for being here and letting us know more about Father Charlie Strobel. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by our senior producer, Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Elizabeth Burton handled the live tweeting. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Tasha A.F. Lemley. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Kaliole Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.